Today is one day out of the year that many celebrate what we celebrate here every Lord's Day, the resurrection of our Lord. And if you are visiting with us today, we welcome you to join us each week in our ongoing celebration of our glorious living Savior who conquered death by rising from the grave. What I will preach today is pretty much what we do here every Sunday. And I would preach this whether it be July, October, or January. Uh, we happen to be in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the final benediction, uh, which happens to be the clearest mention of Jesus' resurrection in the entire epistle. But for those who were not with us for the prior 52 sermons, let me catch everyone up. Uh, Hebrews is a letter. It is written to Jewish believers, perhaps in Rome in the first century. The author, who chooses to remain anonymous, knows the people in the church that he's writing to. He knows them well. He's concerned with their spiritual health. And in particular, he's concerned that amidst the persecution and trials that they are beginning to experience because of their faith in Christ, that many may end up falling away. He was concerned that their emotions might cause them to drift back into their dead traditions from which they were delivered. And he spends much of the epistle, his strategy is to reinforce the truth that Jesus is greater than all else. Anything that came before or anything that came after, he is greater than all. The new covenant is greater than the old. The blood of Jesus on the cross is greater than the blood of animals that was prescribed uh, in the Old Testament. The priesthood is greater than the Jewish Levitical priesthood. His ministry is greater than Moses because Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he is today. The book of Hebrews provides us with a rich Christology that is the doctrine of Christ as it presents Christ to us in arguably the most exalted terms in all of Scripture. In many ways, the book of Hebrews does not resemble other epistles in the New Testament. Some have said the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon before it was put into writing. Some have suggested that it was a sermon based on Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4. Others say it's an exposition of a text in Leviticus or a text in Numbers. These are all possibilities. But Hebrews is an epistle. It is a letter. And nowhere is it any clearer that this is a letter than in the final eight verses, which include all of the components of a New Testament epistle. At the end of many letters we see the same thing, a request for prayer, some general greetings, and a benediction. We saw the request for prayer last time in verse 18. If you look in verse 18 of uh, Hebrews 13, it says, pray for us. The author is asking the, his people to pray, the people who are receiving it. Pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. He's asking for prayer in light of the responsibility, as we saw, the responsibility for leadership in the church of God's people. He's saying, pray for us. And then in verse 19, you see the intimacy, the personal relationship that the author has with these people. Verse 19, he says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to do what? To pray in order that I may be restored to you sooner. 
he loves these people and he wants and he's urging these people to pray earnestly so that I can come soon. Another component that's shared with other epistles in the New Testament is the benediction. Benediction simply means the pronouncement of blessing. And we see this benediction, and this is what we'll focus on today, in verses 20 and 21. This is our text for today, Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verses 20 and 21 are a benediction. Benediction, again, is a pronouncement or an utterance of a blessing. We find benedictions throughout the New Testament. The book of Romans, for example, which is a doctrinal treatise, ends with this benediction in chapter 15, or near the end, chapter 15, verse 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Likewise, Paul concludes his epistle to the church at Ephesus with these words in chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love and f- with faith from God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. To the church at Thessalonica, he concludes with these words in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls you, he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Like Paul, this anonymous author of Hebrews, presumably another apostolic emissary, although we don't know who, nevertheless, he wants a blessing to ring in the ears of the people reading this epistle at the end. This is an epistle that's been rich in doctrine. It's a heavy epistle. There are things that are addressed in Hebrews that are really not addressed elsewhere. But he wants this benediction to ring in their ears. And as he's doing so in this benediction, he reiterates some themes that we see earlier in the letter. Now, what I'm going to do today is work backwards from the end of the benediction in verse 21, where it writes of the to whom be glory forever, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever, amen. And we'll work backward to verse 20. And I'll start with the last word. The last word, the Hebrew word, amen. A word we say amen or amen, a word that concludes our prayers and concludes the blessings. Amen is a Hebrew word that means it is so, or let it be so, or it is true. We say amen as we pray together. It's saying, I'm in agreement with what was just prayed when you say amen at the end of a prayer. What this amen here concludes is what is called a doxology. And a doxology simply means praise offered to God. Throughout the epistle, he's been saying how exalted Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is greater than all else. 
So at the end of verse 21, he says, of Jesus Christ, he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. This doxology harkens back to chapter 1, verse 3. Very early on in our studies of the book of Hebrews, we learned in Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Hebrews tells us time and again of the greatness of Christ. It tells us that God gave Jesus Christ honor and glory and even exaltation to the very, his own right hand. The right hand referring to the place of nearness, but also of power. That's where Jesus Christ is exalted to. The idea here of Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, is a natural conclusion after studying the book of Hebrews, after reading the book of Hebrews, to give glory and honor to Jesus Christ. When we look at the actual request of the blessing, the blessing that is pronounced is a request in verse 21 that God would notice, verse 21, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Let me read that again. That God would equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. With that word pleasing, you see that come up often in, at the end of the book of Hebrews. He's, what he's doing is bringing a closure to the idea of acceptable worship. The idea that began back in chapter 12, verse 28. If you want to look back, look back at chapter 12, verse 28. He's writing here that in light of this glorious, unshakable kingdom that we have in Christ, he exhorts in verse 28, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. That word acceptable worship is synonymous with the worship that is pleasing to God. Pleasing and acceptable are from the same root Greek word. Right after that, in chapter 13, we saw what what encompasses worship, acceptable worship. It's the fruit of lips, that is what comes out of our mouth, but it's also deeds and actions. And these are described in the first 17 verses of chapter 13. What is acceptable worship? Brotherly love, verse 1. Hospitality, verse 2. Remembering the infirmed, verse 3. Honoring the marriage covenant, verse 4. Being content with what you have, verses 5 and 6. Praising God with your lips, verse 15. Doing good to others and sharing, verse 16. And honoring and submitting to leaders, verse 7 and 17. And he writes, look at verse 16. He writes, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there's that language of worship. When you see the word sacrifice, when you see the word pleasing, think worship. God accepts his people. He accepts from his people this these acts of true worship that come from a heart of one who was saved. Now, it's important to realize these sacrifices are not saving sacrifices. 
That is, you will not be saved through brotherly love or, or remembering the infirmed or your hospitality or honoring the marriage covenant or any of these things will not save you, but they are acts of worship for those who are already believers. They are the fruit of a life that is grateful to God for salvation, a salvation that is fully free and all of grace, and these are our acts of worship to thank him. God takes sinners who worship themselves, who live for themselves. And he takes out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. He puts in a new spirit, even his Holy Spirit. And then it is with that new heart that we are no longer bent to worship ourselves, but we desire to worship God as he is pleased. And it's with this new heart that we worship God acceptably. It's the only way that we could worship God acceptably is with a new heart. So this same word that's in chapter 12, verse 28, appears again in chapter 13, verse 21, working in us what is pleasing in his sight. That closes the idea. When you see two words close to each other in a text, often that's an opening and a closing idea. So this closes the whole idea of what is acceptable worship in the lives of God's people. From this benediction, we learn also that even the worshipful response of God's people, that is our acceptable worship, is only possible by grace. Look again at what the author's prayer is here. What is he asking God that he would do in this benediction? Equip you with everything good to do his will. It is God who equips his people with the tools to acceptably worship him. Look also in the language of verse 21. It is God who what? Works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He equips us. He works in us. We are made into true worshipers. We are created into true worshipers by grace. It's a gift. The heart of a true worshiper is a gift given to us by the God of peace. And it's mediated, the text says, through Jesus Christ. So Christ alone has the merit by which we then worship God acceptably. We're not worshiping to gain merit. He alone has the merit by which we worship God acceptably. It is impossible, again, to worship God truly apart from Christ. The good news is that he equips us, that he does it all, in fact. Everything that is required to make you a true worshiper, Christ has already done. Your eternal salvation does not depend on your good works or what a moral good person you are or how loving or how hospitable or charitable or faithful you are. Even if you're beyond just Holy Week, you're faithful throughout the year, that does not save you. While these are good things... They do not contribute one iota of merit. The prophet Isaiah announced that all of our good works are as filthy rags. And the only way that your works become pleasing to God is that if it is God working in you through Jesus Christ. So I would invite you today, if you are still outside of Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 tells you if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, that's what makes our message so beautiful and so different from all of the religions of the world. God does it all. He does all the work for us. What then is our part? Well, our part is to believe. And anyone could do that. From the youngest child here who understands this to the oldest hearing this message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God made the way. Jesus is the way. You need only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God today so that you would not perish in your sin. Today, if you hear this, Today, if you hear his voice and have not yet trusted Christ, let Easter 2023 be the day that changes everything. As the resurrection changed the world, let it change your life. Receive him today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Do not let another Easter pass. Do not harden your heart further. May today be the day of salvation. Trust him today. He took all of your sin and all of your shame upon himself. He paid the price for sin so that you might be forgiven. And then he broke the back of sin and death by rising from the dead. For this blessing of of verse 21 to be yours, you need to be in Christ. You need to be a follower of Christ. You need to be his disciple. You believe and follow him and delay no longer. There's no reason to delay any longer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go to verse 20. The petition and prayer or the benediction that we just saw in verse 21 has a basis. It has a basis upon which the author expresses the request. His expectant prayer for this blessing of the people of God is based upon what comes before that in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, and so on. There's a basis. The basis for the blessing of verse 21 is the God of peace, who brought Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Again, working backwards here. It's God who blesses through Jesus Christ, through his work, through his death, his mediatorial work on the cross, the shedding of his own blood, which we learn here establishes a covenant with his people. See that at the end of verse 20, the end of verse 20, what does it mention? The blood of the eternal covenant. These words are, are a nod to chapters 8 through 10. Uh, of the of the book of Hebrews, where he describes the greater sacrifice of Christ, the greater covenant inaugurated by the greater mediator. In chapter 9, it says these words in verses 12 and 20. It says of Christ, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. How the blood of Jesus makes a new covenant with humanity. How it provides forgiveness for sins. How it provides access to the Father. That this blood, because of this blood of Jesus, we can go to a throne of grace. 
and how that same blood grants eternal life. This is the covenant that was spoken of by the Old Testament prophets time and again. Isaiah 55, verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come to me, God says, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And in verse 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. Ezekiel 47 refers to it as a covenant of peace. One that reconciles. What's the peace? Reconciliation with God. He calls it, Ezekiel calls it an everlasting covenant where God and his people are one. In this new covenant that Jesus himself inaugurated, with his disciples on the eve of Passover, the night before he was crucified, when he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's the new covenant. This covenant was greater than the old covenant, so much so that it actually, the writer of Hebrews tells us, it makes the first one obsolete. That's how great it is. Believers in this new covenant enjoy complete and full forgiveness from sin. No condemnation in this life. And in the life to come, eternal life. What the prophet spoke of, Isaiah, eternal redemption. An eternal, unfading inheritance. And it is all based on these words here. The blood of the eternal covenant. This is the basis also upon which God raised Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 20 again. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now the smallest word in this sentence, you can, you could skip it, you could overlook it. He raised Jesus by what? The blood of the eternal covenant. So let's simplify this state, statement. God Raised Jesus from the dead by, there's the key word by, don't miss it. He raised Jesus from the dead. There's a basis upon which he raised Jesus from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now get what that means. It's an important point. The blood of the covenant is the basis for which Jesus is raised. Why? Because when Jesus shed his blood, his blood was pure and undefiled and untainted by sin. See, death had no legal claim on Jesus. His resurrection vindicated the sacrifice, that the sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that the sacrifice was acceptable to God. And so he establishes this new covenant a covenant that is based on a pure blood of Christ, a covenant that reconciles a holy God, a separate God, to his sinful people. And we can enter into this covenant. Why? 
because Jesus was pure and because he was spotless. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he dies as the redeeming sacrifice, death, remember death? What's death? The wage of sin. Death comes into the world. Why? Because of sin. Death could not hold him because he was sinless. Jesus' blood is so powerful that it is the basis for a new relationship, a new agreement, a new covenant between God and humanity. The prophet Ezekiel calls it in chapter 37 an eternal covenant of peace, one by which God is in the midst of his people, where he is our God and we are his people. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are at peace with God. So I would say again to you, if you are outside of Christ, it is not merely for eternal life that I would appeal you to follow Jesus today. He's good for your soul today. He is good for your soul today. In Christ today, you can be a worshiper of God. You can be brought near to God. You can pray and have your prayers be heard in Christ. And you can hear from God. You can hear his voice. Apart from Christ, you're separated because of your sin, and because he is holy. So again, I would urge you to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. By his blood, he made the way to have a relationship with God. And this relationship can begin immediately. Immediately, even in this moment, if you'll stop trusting in yourself and repent of your sinful, selfish ways and trust and follow Jesus. He's come to give us life and life more abundantly. Eternal life, yes, but abundant spiritual life even now. He becomes the shepherd of your soul. You're running around in circles your whole life. Now you have a shepherd in Christ. He becomes the shepherd of your soul. When uh, David wrote Psalm 23, he spoke about the shepherd who leads the sheep in the green pastures beside the quiet waters. Has your life been a mess? You need to be led in the green pastures, in the quiet waters. He says, even in the midst of your enemies, he lays a table before him. Jesus leads us through storms and trials. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, he leads us. Into eternity, where we will dwell with him forever. That's a savior, that's a shepherd that is worth following. You feel like you're just running around, no purpose, no peace in your life. It's because you need a shepherd. Here in verse 20, we see the only reference to Jesus as a shepherd in the book of Hebrews. Notice it calls what it calls him, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, perhaps why he brings in shepherd here, maybe... uh He's still thinking about leadership from the prior verses in verse 17. Shepherd is a metaphor for leader. And and perhaps he's saying we honor and respect human leaders. But there's only one great. There's only one megan. There's only one great shepherd of the sheep. Turn to Ezekiel 34. In the Old Testament, we see Moses is viewed as a shepherd. Certainly King David was a shepherd. He was a shepherd king, right? A type of Christ. But only Christ 
is the great shepherd. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than David. And he's greater than the leaders in the church, certainly. David, who wrote Psalm 23, said, The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He feeds me. And throughout the Old Testament, the Lord, Yahweh, God, is referred to as a shepherd. Most notably in Ezekiel 34. Look at verse 11. God is speaking and he says, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places from where they have been scattered. Skip down to verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat of the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God himself says he is Israel's shepherd. Jesus then identifies himself as this shepherd. Turn to John chapter 10. And let's look at Jesus' own words where he makes it so clear. This Yahweh who is the shepherd who the prophet spoke of is Jesus Christ. Look at his own words, John 10, beginning in verse 11. These are the words of Jesus Christ. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Stop there for a moment. Keep Stay in John 10 though, but think about what he's saying here. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Yahweh in the Old Testament says, I am the shepherd of my sheep. Undoubtedly, the author of Hebrews has these texts in mind as he calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. But notice what he highlights here about this great shepherd of the sheep. It's interesting. Again, look at verse 20. What did God do to this great shepherd? He brought him again from the dead. He is not only a great shepherd, he's a risen shepherd. But where does he get this idea of putting the resurrection next to the shepherd? Where does he get the idea of a shepherd who rises from the dead? Well, I believe he draws it right out of Jesus' own words. Look at John 10, verse 17. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down, lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the good shepherd, and certainly his goodness is demonstrated by the fact that he lays down his life for the sheep, right? That's what he did for us. That's what, that's what Good Friday was about. At Calvary, on Good Friday, on the cross, he laid down his life. It was no human being who took Jesus' life. He went to the cross willingly because he knew that he was doing something. He was saving his sheep. And he had authority to do so. He had authority to lay down his life. The Father had given him authority to lay down his life, but also what? To take it up again. 
That's a clear reference to the resurrection. So the writer of Hebrews, who up to this point has not so clearly mentioned the resurrection, but certainly presupposed the resurrection, we see it throughout Hebrews, uh, just a few texts, Hebrews 4.14, calls him the great high priest who passed through the heavens. Hebrews 5.7, it says that as he prayed to the Father, the Father was able to save him from death. Hebrews 9.28 talks about his second coming. Chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Certainly the resurrection is presumed in these texts and many others in the book of Hebrews. But now, here in the benediction at the very end, just like in the Gospels, you read all these Gospels and then there's resurrection at the end. Here we are at the end in a benediction, the most explicit mention of the resurrection of Jesus Christ the great shepherd of the sheep who God brought again from the dead. Brethren, the resurrection is the most important fact of human history. The world changed on this one single event. Today, outside the, the gates of the, of the old Jerusalem, there is an empty tomb to prove that. After his death, Jesus appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw him die. How do you explain that away? His resurrection changed the lives of fearful people into apostles who boldly preached the gospel. Boldly preached even to their own martyrdom. Their lives were required for them preaching the resurrection. Even skeptics were changed You say, I'm a skeptical. Well, why don't you join the ranks of the skeptics? Thomas, who famously said, I won't believe unless I stick my hand in the nail holes. He became a preacher of the gospel. James, the brother of Jesus, the family skeptic, became the very first martyr of the church. Paul hated Christians, changed instantly upon seeing the risen Christ. And from the testimony and the witnesses of these people, has arisen a church that here we are 2,000 years later and there have been millions upon millions of followers, all with the same simple conviction, Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. And God tells you and he tells I the same thing today. You must believe this. Again, let me read Romans 10. If you missed it earlier, Romans 10, 9. To be counted among his people. This is what you must believe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice it says believe in your heart. I can go through all that evidence with you if you're skeptical and show you that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And you may even be able to believe it in your head. But do you believe it in your heart? That's the challenge today. Are you trusting him? Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Good Friday, he was nailed to the cross. He died. He truly died. Not as some say, well, he was partially dead. He was only mostly dead. No, he died. A spear pierced his side. He was dead. He laid in the tomb. But because he kept the law perfectly, death had no legal claim on him. The wages of sin is death. He did not sin. Death comes to all who do sin, though. And there is an appointed day for each of us, sooner or later, 
when we will leave this life behind. Hebrews says it very, most clearly. says, it is appointed to men to die once and then the judgment. And that judgment that we're all going to face is not only a physical death, but it is an eternal damnation in hell. You're going to suffer, if you don't receive Christ, you're going to suffer under the wrath of God forever. But God made the way. God made the way to be saved from that wrath. And that way is his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who paid the penalty for that our sin deserves. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He died the death we deserve. He was condemned in our place. But because he was without sin, death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. So on the third day, what we call Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death, not only for himself, but for all of us who place our faith in him. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Do you believe that? The life of your eternal soul is dependent upon whether you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then, because of your faith in Christ, you're joined to him by the Spirit. See, it's not just Christ who rose, but because Christ rose, we all have a hope to rise one day. Believers are taken as, upon our faith, we are placed in Christ by the Spirit. Believers in Christ are placed in Christ. So whatever he has done happens to you. So he died, so you die of your, to your own old sinful nature. He is risen, and one day in Christ you also will rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about this. In fact, if you want to turn there, I'll, I'll close, I'll close down, close up in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So well describes the future of all who are in Christ. Where Paul describes our physical bodies, these bodies that are perishing. We all know that, right? Especially if you're older than 35, 40. <laughs> Perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural. These bodies are going to be raised imperishable in glory and power and spiritual. Verse 47, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. The first man, that's Adam, the first man was from the earth a man of dust. The second man, that's Christ, the second man is from heaven. As he was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's talking about the physical body, the natural body, and the resurrected body. Look at verse 53, where he concludes the idea. He says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Hallelujah. He takes away the sting of death. We can rejoice that our shepherd is risen, that he is risen indeed. And because he rose one day when this life is over and they close the box on your head and stick you in the ground, 
Your grave is one day going to be opened and you're going to rise and you're going to be forever with the Lord. Hallelujah. What a glorious future that our risen shepherd assures us of. He's spoken of as the forerunner, the first fruits. He's shown in Hebrews as the one who's already visited the shores of heaven and he's placed our anchor there. He's an anchor for your soul. If you're trusting in him, you know that you what you have. You know that your Redeemer lives. And in the end, you'll see Him. And it's all because, verse 20, the God of peace raised Jesus, raised Him from the dead. The God of peace raised Him from the dead on the basis of the power of the shed blood established in the New Covenant. Let's lastly consider the subject of this whole benediction. Who is it? The God of peace, verse 20. The God of peace. Called so because of the peace that he gives you in your soul by reconciling us to himself through the death, through the resurrection of his son. What peace we know in our soul. What joy it is to know him. There's that bumper sticker or that saying that says, No Jesus, N-O, no Jesus, no peace. And then it's no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. You can know true and everlasting peace with God because he has reconciled you to himself. Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Are you at peace with God? Follow Christ and know true peace.